So maybe you could say that about this world. It's just the way it is. It's broken and it's divided. And the older you get, the more you realise that normal life is not just playing and laughing and doing what you like with good friends all the time, you know, like it used to be. Although, was it really ever like that? Uh, when we were kids, I mean, I look at the kids fighting these days and the unhappiness and the whinging and, you know, kicking up a stink and tantrums, and that's just my own. Uh, <laughs> so, but it, the world's not a happy place a lot of the time. Sickness, violence, loneliness, helplessness, injustice, natural disasters, relationship breakdown, abuse, wars, corruption, bitterness disappointment, tragedy, are just normal things in our world. Uh, I mean, for those who have been around church this year, I mean, it's been a particularly sad year for, for uh, many in our church with loss of loved ones, you know, there's still the grieving over what, you know, Macquarie Fields and the changes this year, I guess. Uh, there's other stuff happening, Brian and Julie, uh, the verdict came down on Friday in the appeal that uh, the appeal was dismissed uh, and so they're working if they're going to appeal again to the High Court. Uh, it's just awful. Why is that? Why is it we simply can't get things right and sort out the problems in our world and, and in, even in our own lives? Why do we disappoint our own expectations of ourselves, let alone our expectations in other people's? Well, well, today as we come to Genesis 3, we're going to unpack the origins of evil in this world. We've been working through this book. We started last week looking at this book of origins. That's what the word Genesis means. But today this tells us what, about what has euphemistically come to be known as the fall. Now, the fall, it's not a biblical term, uh, and I'm not even sure it's a, a really helpful term because it makes it sound almost accidental, what happened. Uh, like, whoops, tripped over a rock that I didn't see back there, but it was no accident. And though it's a very familiar story to most people, even the most pagan of Australians all can tell you about Adam and Eve eating the fruit, uh, it's amazing how the details, the significance and the profound implications of it are almost completely lost on them. Well, we left off, as David said last week in chapter 2, with this glorious picture of, of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden, perfect for each other, in a relationship of unity and love, which was meant to bring glory to God who'd made them as they, they joyfully got on with the purposes for which he had made them in the first place. Uh, together they've been given the task, remember back in chapter 1, of filling the earth and subduing it uh, as those made in the image of God. And we talked about what that meant last week. Uh, Adam, chapter 2, specifically given the task as a gardener, uh, that is a worker, which is uh, why men you should get out and mow your lawns. Uh, and Eve was created from him. She was like him, uh, made of the same substance, but she was different from him in order to, to be what the older translations call a helpmeet, uh, a, a suitable partner for him so that together they could they get on with uh, being God's people in God's world, doing God's work. And it all looks so wonderful until we hit chapter 3. And all of a sudden we're introduced to someone who doesn't look like they really fit in at all to the created order, which up until now has either been good or very good, right? Uh, good as he made it and then he got to the end and said, it's very good. It's just perfectly fitting. It's awesome. Exactly what I intended, said God. 
Very good. But then this serpent turns up, who the rest of the Bible is going to call Satan or the devil. Uh, you meet him in chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent, not just any serpent, this serpent, this serpent, was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now notice that that says something about the devil and who he is. It tells us that he's a creature that made by God. Uh, there's no other origin story for the devil. He's just a part of creation, we're told. Now, all sorts of people want to speculate on who he is and where he came from, and, and they come up with all kinds of wild stories. Uh, the Muslims say the devil was made from the element of fire, whereas man was made from dust, which is why he's so chaotic, because flames uncontrollable and, and burn you. Uh, that's why he's untamable. Uh, many Christians have a story they think is from the Bible uh, about the devil being a mighty angel. He was a prince of heaven who was jealous of God and led a rebellion against God. Uh, and they, they get that by kind of allegorizing Ezekiel 27, which is not about the devil at all. Uh, it's about the king of Tyre who God's going to bring down in his pride. Um, so the truth is we're, we're not told anywhere about the devil's origin apart from here, and that is that he was made by God. Now, that's important because it means that he's not an equal and opposite God. Uh, it's not like there are two all-powerful gods out there who are fighting each other and we're waiting to see who's going to win. No, there's one God and Satan is, is one of his creatures. He's lower than him and not as powerful. But straight away, it's obvious that though God made him, he's, he's not up to any good. Uh, we're not told why God would make someone like that, only that he was there. And he's much like the scam artists of today who go around and say, did you know that your taxes haven't been paid? We've, we've spotted an error. There's messages going around to a lot of older people from the ATO. Uh, Gavin asked me to point this out because uh, the email says uh, you can pay your back taxes in iTunes vouchers. Uh, <laughs> And Woolworths down here have had to put up a sign saying the ATO does not accept iTunes vouchers. It's a scam. And he has report after report at his police office um, of victims who said, Man. but scams are going on all the place. Some of them are offering rewards. Some of them are driven by fear. But the devil's kind of like a scam artist. He appeals to what they know deep down that they want and will come across as your best friend who's just trying to do you a favour. That's how the devil comes across, isn't he? But it's not true because he's out to sow destruction. And right from the start, you can see what the devil is really like. Okay, That he's a liar who seeks to undermine God and to tempt you away from God. And it's his lies here in Genesis 3 that are going to cause so much damage, all the damage that we see around us in the world, whether directly or indirectly. And all these lies revolve around that tree that's in the middle of the garden, which I happily dodged last week, which is not an apple tree uh, as Western art tends to depict it. I mean, here's, here's a classic picture of the apple tree in the garden. I've tastefully clipped it off so you can't see the bits. Um, yeah, there you go. Or not so tastefully clip this one from, from modern art. Yeah, Desperate Housewives title page. Uh, there you go. Uh, well, she's standing tastefully, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, you know, modern art depicts it as an apple. Uh, actually, people in the Middle East depict it as a fig tree. Uh, but it's not that either. It's a unique tree which is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
That's the tree they're not doing, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you find out what it's for as the serpent engages Eve with his charms and, and starts feeding her his lies. And just like all good lies, what makes them so effective and persuasive is that there is at least a hint of truth to them or at least a suspicion of truth contained in them. There's three lies that the devil tells and and all of the three lies question God somehow. All right? Now, uh, this is important, okay? Uh, the first one's in verse 2. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Uh, see, that's a lie which is really questioning God's word. Right? It's the most subtle of the three lies. It's intended to create uncertainty. Uh, are you sure that's what God said? Maybe, maybe you misheard it or misunderstood it. Are you sure he meant it like that? Really? Uh, that couldn't be the case. Well, she resists that one. She's confident she knows what God said and stands aground, even though she doesn't quite act very accurately uh, translate it. She says, you know, we're not allowed to eat, but we're not allowed to touch it either. I mean, that's, she's invented that. Uh, maybe she's just putting a safeguard around it. You can't eat it if you can't touch it, unless you're into apple bobbing and, you know, you, know, you can have a go. But... Uh, <laughs> She says, we're not to eat it or touch it or we're going to die. Then the devil comes up with his second lie in verse 4. And this isn't as subtle as the first one. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. It's, it's direct and it's directly questioning God's consequences. First one questions his word. This one questions God's consequences. Basically, he's outright denying that God's going to do anything about it. You know, God's having you on. It's not going to be that bad. I mean, God loves you. He made you. I mean, he's just done surgery on Adam to create you. <laughs> and he wouldn't do that to you. And before she gets a chance to respond to that, he pops the third lie in verse 5, which, which questions God's motives. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, God, God's just jealous. He's protecting his own interests. He's holding out on you. He knows that you'll really benefit. This is a really good thing for you. And he doesn't want to give because he's mean. God doesn't want to give you the best thing in your life. And, and we know better. He's just protecting his own interests. He does not care about you fully. And I want to suggest that the devil is still using exactly the three, same three lies today. The same three lies by which he continues to deceive and destroy. Yes, there's a demonic realm. Yes, there's things like possessions and stuff in the Bible. You can see them. But the main way that the devil operates in this world is by his lies. And these three are the basis of just about all of them. And he does it because they're so effective. Because these lies appeal to our inner desires. Uh, deep down, we, we want those lies to be true, don't we? That we can get ahead and be perfectly okay. Did God really say the consequences won't be that bad? God's holding out on you. And I think you could take just about any example of human sin or anything that comes up in the Bible as something that God says to do or not do. And, and you could see it at work, whether it was sex before marriage or greed or jealousy or speeding, paying your taxes, uh, who can you marry, uh, issues of men and women in the church or in marriage, you name it, these same three lies keep coming up again and again. Did God really say there's not going to be any consequences? God's holding out on you. Take 
let's take sex as an example. And I, and, and I, I raise that because, well, it was the one that came up in Genesis 1 and 2 last week. Um, is sex something that is only for marriage? Well, you could say adultery. Yeah, that's, that's maybe a problem because you've made a vow. And so well, let's not talk about that. Well, let's talk about sex before marriage, uh, moving in together. Did God really say that's wrong? I mean, where, where's the command that explicitly outlaws it in the Bible? Can anyone point it out? Um, and, and what's the harm? It's, it's not hurting anyone. There's not really going to be any consequences, particularly if you're careful and use all the modern protections. And, and if you really love each other, what damage could it do? And, and you know what? God's just a killjoy who's stopping us having fun. In fact, his ways are denying us an important part of growing up, exploring our bodies and our sexuality. God's, God's in fact, holding out on us. You see how the lies undermine God, and they're used by Satan in almost every aspect of life that you can think of. But in this case here in Genesis 3, the three lies all turn around the tree. Why does the devil so want them to eat from this tree? Well, because he knows what it will do to them. Listen, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What the heck does that mean? (laughs) Uh, God says it later on that they now are like me, knowing good and evil. That's partly why he has to kick him out of the garden later on. So there's a truth in it. Uh, It's kind of strange because... You remember, they're made in the image of God, and so they're already like God in some way. And we explored that last week. All right, so, so they're already like God, but not in this way. They're not like God in this way, knowing good and evil. So what does that mean? Well, it's not just about knowing there's such a thing as good and evil, that evil exists. Adam already knew that was the case. He knew what was good, getting on with what God had told him to do, being the gardener, loving his wife and filling the earth and all the rest of it. And he already knew what was evil. Do not eat from that tree. He knew it was wrong to do it and he knew what the bad consequences would be because the day you eat of it, you'll die. So it's not that about naivety or that they were too dumb to know there was such a thing as right and wrong beforehand because uh, they did know. So what does it do? this fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, I guess the question is, well, how is it that God knows good and evil if this is going to make you like God in the way he knows? Well, the way that God knows good and evil is not by experiencing it. God doesn't do evil, so he doesn't know it that way. He knows good and evil by determining it, by deciding what it is that's right and what's wrong. And that's what the fruit of the true knowledge of good and evil is about. It's about taking into your own hands that power to decide what's right and wrong for you. It's about sitting in God's place in your life and and exercising your own judgment about the world and and about what to do as if you were God. It's about self-determination and freeing yourself from the shackles of a supposed moral slavery to God. It's about making up the rules and being Lord of your own life. That's what it means to be like God, knowing good and evil. And as such, it's totally evil and corrupt. You know, in old-fashioned terms, it's treason. Uh, in John Howardy kind of terms, it's sedition. 
It's what in every nation in history until only very recently in world terms has been punishable by death because it destroys society when people act like that. When you become a law unto yourself and you say, blow God, blow everyone else, I'm in charge of me, it is totally selfish and it just creates chaos. And, and really it's the cause of all of humanity's ills on every level. Because when I want to be God and when you want to be God, who's going to be God when we meet? We're going to clash and butt heads and fight each other. It's, it's why kids, even lovely kids like Eleanor here, bash each other over the head you know, and, and try and have that. It's my toy. But anyway, but it's mine, it's mine and stuff. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. You know, of course, we're too grown up for that. Uh, just, just check. I'm just looking around. <laughs> so we, we, we're more sophisticated. We use things like manipulation instead. It's why nations war against nations and why neighbours fight over tree branches and drop fruit and garbage and uh, loud parties because it's not the way I would do it. It's, it's about self-interest. It's about me and my rights and, and you getting in my way. It's why lovers quarrel and families disintegrate. It's what happens when I become God. That's the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and what it does. But Eve, she likes the sound of that. <laughs> so she gives in to the lie and she takes it and gobbles it up. Now a question I've always wondered about and maybe you've wondered about is where the heck's Adam when all that's happening? You know, is he off doing some taper in the garden? Maybe he's, you know, off making some elephants out of jasmine or something or maybe some beautiful swans. Uh, was he out naming some of the more exotic creatures in God's world? You know, the, the chameleon and the, you know, the aardvark. I mean, <laughs> where, where is he? Well, actually, we're told exactly where he was while all this is happening. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Where was he? He's with her while his wife is being led astray through terrible lies about God. He's right there with her. And what's he doing? Absolutely nothing. He's a model husband in that <laughs> He's a model of what not to do. He, he's just standing there while this great evil is happening to his wife, to, well, humanity, I guess. Which means that he's either too gutless to do anything about it, or he's too disinterested to be bothered... Or he's too engrossed in his own little thought world to see what's happening right in front of him to be of any use. And I think that is a great warning to us who are husbands and fathers and leaders. Do not be like him. He should have stepped up when it really mattered. And so Genesis 3 is as much about his failure as it is about hers. And in the end he joins in when she offers him some of the fruit to eat as well. I mean... I like Alison's cooking. I mean, what husband wouldn't take food that was just offered to him? 
And so both of them do what God had told them not to do and what he had warned them about. And it unleashes terrible consequences. Terrible consequences instantaneously and some that are going to last down through the ages. Well, what are the consequences? Well, I'll just whip through them quickly. There's shame in verse 7. They're embarrassed about themselves and about their nakedness. And so they make a pretty poor attempt at making clothes themselves out of leaves. But it's, it's creating a level of embarrassment and awkwardness between, between them at the very least. There's fear. That's a consequence. They hide from God. When, when he finally finds them, tracks them down and asks them, why were you hiding from me? What does Adam say? I heard you coming and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Fear is a new thing in his relationship with God. Now, I want to say we're all inheritors of this problem. We all believe the lie. We are just as guilty as Adam and Eve. It's not just their fault. We'll talk about blame in a minute. But fear is a good and right and proper thing. It is right to fear God. God is a consuming fire, we are told. He is terrifying in his wrath. Uh, you read the end of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10 and 11. He's a consuming fire. You, he is not you know, just your mate. You know, he, and, but the reason there's fear is because of sin, because something is wrong. And God is a God of justice. He hates evil. So it's appropriate, but it's a consequence also of what's happening. And I don't think he's just afraid that God might see some things he's not seen before. God made him. He knows what he looks like. Um, he's afraid because he knows God will be on to what's happened because of their pathetic attempts at covering themselves up. He, he knows God's a bit cluey. And I'm sure he's downright petrified of what God's going to do about it. Is he going to follow through on his promised threat of death? third consequence is that they both try and shift the blame which brings division into their marriage uh, adam starts it off uh, by doing what just about all men do when there's a problem pass the buck right <laughs> who does he blame well verse 12 the woman that you put here with me she made me do it it's her fault and it's your fault most of all god because you put her here <laughs> it's not my fault it's anyone but my fault Rather than just fessing up and copying whatever's coming, which is what you should do if you've done the wrong thing, he just tries to get out of it, which I think makes him even more of a gutless wonder than he was before. But Eve just follows his lead. Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. I ate it. You know that one. The devil made me do it. I mean, that's the cry of the guilty down through the ages. But it all started here. And... In one sense, it's true, isn't it? And it's true that the woman made him eat it, and it's true that God put her there. But you see, it's a whole overthrowing of the created order. I mean, he's made the man, he's made this woman to be his helper, and together they would rule creation, but now the creation has led the woman, who's led the man, who then blames God. Can you see what's happening? It's, it's everyone for themselves hoping that someone else is going to pay the price. But they're all to blame. They're all at fault. In different ways, sure. The devil for his monstrous lies, the woman for even entertaining the possibility that God could be wrong, 
and the man for his gross negligence and utter uselessness. So there's some immediate consequences there of shame and fear and passing the buck. But there are more terrifying consequences that are about to come in the form of God's curse. First, the serpent's cursed in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now I just want to say, it may feel that's a bit of a dream time kind of story to explain why snakes have no legs and why you should watch out that they don't bite you when you're in the bush, especially in Australia, because we have the deadly snakes, those very nice Argentinian snakes, you know. <laughs> Sorry, who cares about them? But yeah. <laughs> It, it's, it's not that. This isn't a Dreamtime story. Uh, it's not about why snake, yes, snakes have no legs. That is true. Uh, and you shouldn't tempt fate by letting them bite you. But this isn't about that. See, God is putting a curse not on snakes, but on Satan, the snake, the serpent. And he's saying that he's going to be just this worthless crawler from now on. But the real substance of the curse on him is the hatred that's now going to be there, the hatred, the enmity between humanity and Satan, that they are now going to be mortal enemies, both seeking to bring death to each other. But then God turns to the woman and God's curse on her all relates to stuff in in family life. And you say, yeah, thanks, Eve. (coughs) Thanks, God. I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. Now any woman who's had a child uh, knows the pain of childbearing only too well. Uh, I mean, I've had kidney stones and I know they're painful, but that's a little thing inside you, right? Uh, not a whopping great human being. Anyway, uh, but, but why that? Is it, is it just arbitrary? Yeah, couldn't he have said instead, you know, your homes will be forever messy. There will be dirt on your carpet forever. Would, why pains in childbearing? Is it because I think it's so fundamentally connected with the task that God gave humanity at the start to to fill the earth and to subdue it, and so God's curse is directly impacting on on our ability to fulfil the purpose that He gave us. He's going to make doing his stuff really frustrating and you see that pan out all through here same with the relationship between the husband and wife because they were made for each other for harmony and joy to work together but now because of the curse marriage and relationships are going to be difficult forever you might ask how do i get that doesn't he say your desire will be for your husband doesn't that mean women are cursed forever to look at their man with doughy eyes (laughs) and you know and conclude that he is Adonis. <laughs> Just, mm, see you later. <laughs> so, uh, is, uh, that's not what it means. Not at all. I don't know what you're saying, though. It's the husbands who should be going, oh. <laughs> No, it's about conflict, actually. Uh, You can tell that because of what happens in the next chapter where the identical phrase is used in chapter 4 and verse 6. We'll see it next week. 
where God says to Cain, who's jealous of his brother, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. It's exactly the same phrase here. The desire is the desire for mastery. It's the desire to dominate and rule. In, in Cain's case, sin desires to rule his heart and his life, but he's going to not give in. He's going to master it. In Eve's case, she's going to desire to run her husband's life and have everything revolve her, her around her plans for him, but, but it's not going to work, or at least not without a fight. And so it's really creating the opening for warfare in marriage where, where couples are going to seek to force their will on the other person, whether it's through manipulation or violence or coercion or control or whatever it might happen to be. And it's awful. But that's the curse. God's curse on the man. Well, he's cursed in his work. He was created to work the garden in joy and fellowship with God, but now cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and, and you'll eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. He's going to have to labour and sweat and struggle to get ahead and to make ends meet and to feed his family. It's going to be tough and miserable, and workplaces can be dreadful environments. And he's going to have to keep doing it until his strength fails him and he dies. And to make that death sentence absolutely final, they are kicked out of the garden and cannot gain access again to the tree of life, which was what was sustaining them. And so it's a pretty bleak picture, which I think we know the effects of only too well in our lives. Both of the realities of the consequences of fear and shame and and blame-throwing, and, and, and the consequences of the curse. But, but where does it all leave us? Is there any hope? Well, I guess so, because we're only on page three. <laughs> and so there's an awful lot of Bible still to go. In fact, you know, people ask about the question of suffering and evil and how can God let it happen and what's he going to do, you know, all those kind of questions and things. As if, as if you could give a one-sentence answer or, you know, maybe a paragraph or a little essay when, when this is the answer to that problem, right? That's what the Bible is about. It's about the solution to that issue. And so, yes, there is an answer. But the answer is going to be hard. Yes, there can be hope for people like us who think that we are gods. Yes, there can be hope for people like us who tear each other apart and who struggle through life with its difficulties and sadnesses. Yes, there can be hope for people who are subjected now to futility and pointlessness and decay. But that hope is not going to come without great cost. It's not going to come without great difficulty. And it cannot come but from the hand of God, the one whose curse it is on our rebellion. It can only come if he relents. And it can only come if the great enemy who led us into all this is destroyed, if Satan is defeated. And there's a little clue dropped into the passage that points towards that hope. It's in verse 15. It's, it's in that curse on the serpent. You see there, God says, I'll put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head 
and you will strike his heel. It's interesting that it's singular, that it's a, it's a particular offspring, a particular he. There will be an offspring of Eve, a child in the future who is going to crush Satan himself, but it's going to come at the cost of being struck down himself. And it's pointing towards a time many years in the future when God himself would become a man and as a man he would come and live amongst the pain and the misery and the corruption uh, of, of this world that's suffering under sin and under his curse. And in the end he would die a terrible death. He surrounded by enemies on all sides, betrayed by one of his closest friends, Abandoned by all the rest of them in the epitome of self-absorption and self-protection, which is just directly the fruit of the tree. Delivered there by Satan himself, no less. And there he would die, but not before delivering the death strike to Satan. That is not to say the devil is dead and buried now. He is real. He is dangerous. He has been defeated, but he's in his death throes. And you can do a lot of damage in your death rows. But, you know, but the damage comes, as it always has, through his lies. His lies which still cause us to question God's word and question God's consequences and even question God's motivations. But his end is certain. Jesus will return and deliver the final blow in the judgment where he will trouble us no more. But that is a day yet to come. Let me just draw out, like we did last week, some very brief implications for us from all that. Human nature. Human nature is corrupt. And yet one of the lies that continues to persist, and again it's just the lies of the devil, is that at heart people are basically good and lovely. We start as a clean slate and it's only the system that corrupts us. It is not true. And while we might try to ignore it, while we can try and wrap ourselves in bubble wrap and pretend otherwise, we are the source of all the problems in the world. It's just the way we are. Which means a few things. One, you've actually got to have right expectations about other people and even about yourself. You can't go through life expecting that people are always going to treat you well. Even Christian people, right? All people are fallen. And they will let you down. They'll break their word. They'll be proud. They'll say things that hurt you. And you know what? You're going to do exactly the same thing. You can't help it. And most of the time, it won't even be intentional. It's just that we're scratched and damaged. Now, is it right that we do those things? Absolutely not. I'm not encouraging it. Uh, God forbid. But does it mean that we can never trust anyone? No, there are some people who are more trustworthy and others who are less. But... There is no one who is completely trustworthy other than God. right? Don't doubt his word. He can be relied upon to do exactly what he promises, which is wonderful because he makes some very good promises. Two, it means we're going to have to learn to forgive each other, doesn't it? If you're high and mighty and can't forgive people, you're going to end up very sad and lonely. If there's people who've let you down or people that you've let down, as I said before, go and sort it out with them. Three, is it possible to create a better world? A world where we could just get everyone to stop sinning and hating and fighting and lusting. Why, why can't we just make people stop? It's amazing how many people think it's possible. I mean, I think that's what happens with the education system. We, all society's ills will be solved if we had a better education policy or better hospitals 
or better police force. You know, just it would solve everything. And you know, John Lennon. You know, just imagine. There's no God and no religion. What, what's going to happen if we just take God out of the picture? There'll be a universal brotherhood of man where we all love each other and hug and kiss, and it'll be amazing. It, yeah, or if you're not into kind of the classics, Nickelback. Uh, uh, as we lie beneath the stars, we realise just how small we are. If they could love like you and me, imagine what the world could be. If everyone cared and nobody cried, if everyone loved and nobody lied, if everyone shared and swallowed their pride, we'd see the day when nobody died. That is an astonishing thing to say, isn't it? It's an astonishingly stupid thing to say. If we were just a nice and don't lie and care for each other, we will wipe out death. They're morons. <laughs> it is patently untrue. We can fix it, says Bob the Builder. No, we can't. <laughs> <laughs> Because although we have the image of God, we are fallen and broken things that aren't going to be able to fix ourselves or other broken things. And so no amount of education, judicial powers, psychological treatment or anything else is going to make us the perfect, peace-loving, hard-working, altruistic, God-honouring, servant-hearted people that, that we might ourselves aspire to be and that we were created to be. We cannot fix ourselves and we cannot fix this world only God can. But it is only going to happen through the gospel as he changes hearts, as he changes lives. So finally, how do you fight the devil? He's real. He's there. He's in his death throes. But how do you fight the devil? What, what does spiritual warfare look like? Do we need to carry holy water and crucifixes and you know a bit of onion and garlic? Oh, no, hang on. That's vampires. That's not the devil. <laughs> No, you fight the devil as you fight his lies. You fight him as you stand for the truth. You fight him as you resist his temptations. You fight him as you joyfully put your hope and your trust in the Saviour Jesus Christ, the one who really has defeated sin and death. And you fight him as you bring people under the sound of his gospel by which he saves and gives true hope. You fight him as you pray to your Lord and Heavenly Father. And ask for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done. That's how you fight the devil. You get on your knees and pray and then you get out there and you say, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to obey his word. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. I wonder if it might be worth reflecting over morning tea. One question. What do you think the greatest lies are that the devil has convinced the world of? these days let me pray father these are hard words to hear about ourselves and our race and our families and our children that we are broken that we have bought into the lies and we are suffering the consequences father we pray for those who are struggling those who struggle with sin most of all we pray that you bring them to repentance we pray you bring us to repentance every day we pray for those who are struggling with the, the outcomes of sickness and health and injustice. And, but Father, be with them. Watch over them. But Father, help us all to know that the true hope for the future is found in Jesus Christ, 
the King, the Saviour, the one who has died and defeated Satan. We look forward to that day when it will all be over. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.